Warning, this case involves graphic details of a crime against a child. Listener discretion is advised. Two brothers, one murder. What really happened to 13-year-old Gregory Whitman? Hello and welcome back to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Summer podcast. This is episode 41. As you heard in my introduction, today I will be talking about the murder of Gregory Whitman. My sources for today's episode are the Whitmans on Investigation Discovery, The Cinemaholic, Grunge.com, People, the York Daily Record, YorkDispatch.com, FoxNews.com, and AP News. As usual, all of my sources will be linked in today's show notes. Consider us to be just a normal, average, middle-class American family. There's lots and lots of people just like us. Ron and Sue Whitman said that Gregory and Zachary were very different. Zachary was the instigator, but Gregory was very fun. The boys often played together, and there were never any issues. The Whitmans are still together today, but are more roommates than a married couple. I can't even imagine the pain that they dealt with. One son is dead, and the other is in prison, or was in prison. If you've never heard about this case, I apologize for spoiling it. But yes, Zachary Whitman was eventually arrested for his brother's murder. Now we will get into what happened that day in 1998. On October 2nd, 1998, a Friday, the weekend of homecoming in New Freedom, York County, Pennsylvania, Zachary stayed home from school. He wasn't feeling well and had been sleeping all day. Gregory was due home a little after 3 p.m. Sue worked at a bank and she always received a call from the boys around 3.20 p.m. By 3.40, Sue thought it was odd that they hadn't called yet. Instead of calling his mom, Zachary made a different call. He called 911. As you can hear, Zachary appears emotional, maybe a little out of breath. He said he was homesick and heard a noise downstairs. The EMTs were dispatched to the Whitman home. They were only told that it appeared to be a trauma case. When they arrived, Zachary was standing in the garage. He was screaming for help and covered in blood. One EMT said in the documentary that he thought it was odd that Zach was crying but didn't see any actual tears. Gregory was lying on the floor of the back laundry room. He had been stabbed in the head and neck and his throat had been cut. His head was almost decapitated. Gregory tried to fight off his attacker. He had several defensive wounds on both hands. The EMT described that he could see uh, what Gregory had for lunch. Zachary told the EMTs that he attempted to give Gregory CPR. The police notified Sue that Gregory was dead and that Zachary was on his way to the hospital. Ron received the news when his flight landed. A security guard let him know what had happened. The police followed the EMTs to the hospital. Sue then realized that Zachary was a suspect. 
They weren't an experienced police force, and they zeroed in on Zachary very quickly. I also don't blame them. Zachary was the only one home with his brother that day. Sue and Ron both asked Zach if he did it. Zachary told them no, and they believed him. Many people in the community believed he was responsible. The community turned on the Whitmans, and they were no longer the victims. At first glance, it seems like another beautiful fall day here. But for many people, living in southern York County hasn't been the same since 13-year-old Gregory Whitman was found brutally stabbed to death a week ago. It's a tragedy for the whole area. It's affecting everybody, really, from young to old. The street was blocked off, and they were just taking Greg's body out. My mom and I just stood here and just cried. We didn't know how he was killed. Any type of you have a crime like this, it's kind of out of rage with the number of stab wounds and the stab wounds in the area that it was. Our windows and doors are locked every night. You never know if it was a serial killer or just a random thing. We all just want an answer. We want to know who did it, why. It's hard to even consider that such a thing is possible, but we simply have to deal with it. Back at the crime scene, many people were in and out of the house. The investigators, EMTs, volunteer firefighters were all walking freely through the house. The police wanted to use aluminol, but they had never used it before. They had to read the directions on how to mix it. A bloody penknife and soccer gloves were found buried in the backyard. The penknife was determined to have been the murder weapon, even though this is very controversial to today. Twelve hours after Gregory was found dead, the police had made up their minds that Zachary did it. Rumors spread that maybe Zachary was angry at his brother and that he was on drugs which made him kill. Both Sue and Ron deny that Zach was ever on drugs. Within the week of the murder, Zachary was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. There were mixed opinions about whether or not Zach should be tried as a, ju a juvenile or as an adult. Several psychiatric tests were done for the prosecution and defense. The judge, John C. Euler, eventually made the decision to try Zachary as an adult. There is no evidence in this child of entitlement, rage, conflict with parents and authority figures, and struggles with impulse control. The trial was delayed several times due to evidence. Zach's pants were somehow into evidence. The prosecution appealed several times to put the pants into evidence, but they were never put back. A motive couldn't be determined either. Zachary was granted bail and was under house arrest for four and a half years, in the same house that Gregory was killed in, surrounded by his brother's things. The few people that did support Zach said his spirit went away, and he's never been the same person. He also was very pale because he was kept inside. The trial finally began on May 7, 2003. Most of the community believed he was guilty before the trial even began. Zachary was described as showing no emotion. He sat there and stared. On the day of the murder, Zachary left the key in the door for Greg. Gregory returned home from school a little after 3 p.m., and the 911 call was made just a few minutes later. The prosecution said that Gregory was attacked the minute he walked into the door. Gregory tried to run around the house to escape, jumped over the dog gate, and ended up in the laundry room. Gregory was unable to escape that day. He fought so hard to live, but his attacker overpowered him. During the murder, Gregory's friend Erin called the Whitman house like she did every day after school. The phone rang, she called again, and Zachary answered. The girl never said that Zachary sounded odd or out of breath. He told Aaron that Gregory wasn't home yet. It is a strange part of the case because you'd think that Zachary would sound weird or that Aaron would find something off about him, unless Zachary really did kill his brother and showed no signs of something being off. 
I'm going to play another part of the 911 call because to me, Zachary seems very emotional. However, I can also see that maybe he's overreacting just based on the things that he says in this clip. You say you were upstairs and you heard a bang and that's it. Not a bang. Not like, a bang. You heard a loud like, noise. You just like the suffering almost. Like, it was like nothing around. Yeah. And then I, and then I come downstairs and the door's cracked. He's just lying there. Just lying there. I can't see him. It's down. Come on. Come on. To the prosecution, the evidence spoke for itself. Zachary had blood on his sweatshirt and soil on his socks from apparently burying the murder weapon and gloves in the backyard. The police said that their luminal tests showed that Zach had walked outside to the tree to bury his items. However, an expert later said that the luminol was sprayed near the hot tub, which can alter the test due to the chemicals from the hot tub. Plus, there was no blood on any of the exterior doors. Gregory's crime scene was a bloody mess, and you're telling me a 15-year-old was able to get no blood on anything? The police checked the drains in the home, and no blood was found in the drains either. Unless Zach, at 15 years old, was an expert at cleaning up blood, I don't see this as possible. Henry Lee, the famous forensic scientist, spoke in the documentary. He said he believes the blood transfer on Zachary's sweatshirt could have been from him moving Gregory like the 911 dispatcher asked him to do. He also said there was barely any soil on his socks. Aaron testified that Zachary seemed normal on the phone call. The defense kind of fucked up when they didn't show the actual phone records that could prove Zachary was or was or was not innocent. But Sue said that on their first Sue said that their first defense attorney became ill, so they were stuck with Dave McLaughlin. Sue said he thought he was an expert on everything and didn't even call any experts. On May 21st, 2003, after 11 hours of deliberation, Zachary Whitman was found guilty. He was sentenced to life without parole. In 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that sentencing juveniles to die in prison is cruel and unusual and unconstitutional. Thousands have a chance to have a chance for release. In 2017, a private investigator named Jeff Stein was hired to look into a new lead. A woman came forward and said that a man had complained about the, quote, rich kids, end quote, of the neighborhood. The man made comments that he could kill the rich kids, hide the evidence, and no one would know. Apparently, some kids had been making fun of his son, who went to the same school as Gregory. Gregory. His son had learning disabilities. The woman said the man lived within walking distance of the Whitman's home and owned a small penknife like the murder weapon. For Zach to be released, he would have to admit he killed his brother. Zach decided to plead guilty to third-degree murder. He admitted that Gregory had gotten mad at him for hanging up on his friend Aaron. He then killed Gregory in the laundry room of their house. On May 21, 2019, Zach Whitman was released. The Whitmans now live in a remote area of Pennsylvania. I'm not sure what to think, to be honest. I can see from both sides. However, it seems like a very angry attack, especially for a 15-year-old. It didn't seem like Zach ever had any anger issues or issues in general. The Whitmans seem like a loving family, but I guess looks can be deceiving. The 911 call is the most chilling part to me, especially when Zach yells, why, why, why? And maybe people report that Zach never actually showed emotion. I know people will probably comment, you don't know how you're going to react unless you're in this position, and I agree. It's just a comment I had to make. I'd love to know what you think about this case. 
My book recommendation for this week is Witness for the Prosecution of Scott Peterson by Amber Fry. Summary. Their connection was immediate. Over the next few weeks, Amber and Scott grew closer and closer. Scott won her over with his warmth, humor, and intelligence, and he even won the heart of little Ayanna. Before long, he began to speak of the beautiful future the three of them were destined to share as a family. Soon enough, however, Amber began to suspect that Scott Peterson might not be the man he claimed to be. On December 9th, he broke down in tears and told her that he had been married, but he had, quote, lost his wife. This was weeks before Lacey Peterson, eight months pregnant at the time, was reported missing. Scott Peterson hadn't lost her, but clearly he was planning to. Scott, or sorry, suddenly a relationship that seemed full of promise was turning into Amber's worst nightmare. Amber launched an investigation of her own. The moment she was able to confirm her worst suspicions, she contacted the Modesto Police Department in Northern California and offered to do whatever she could to help. She began secretly taping her conversations with Scott, pressuring him for information, but never letting on that she heard the news of Lacey's disappearance. Those conversations became the basis for the prosecution's case against Scott Peterson for the murder of his wife and unborn child, Connor. Amber's whole world was turned upside down in the process. She lost her privacy as every detail of her life was scrutinized by the media, who couldn't seem to get enough of this tragic, heart-wrenching story. But she soldiered on, looking deep inside herself and drawing strength from her faith. Witness is the chilling story of how a young woman became ensnared in Scott Peterson's web of lies then risk everything to seek justice for Lacey Peterson and Connor. It is also the story of forgiveness and faith in one of woman and one of one of women's struggles to live with an open and honest heart. Sorry, that last sentence was clearly very hard for me to get out. Review. I actually thought it was a really good book. Say what you want about Amber, but she seemed like she truly wanted to help find Lacey and Connor. She was duped by Scott as was her best friend and everyone in Scott's life, it seemed. Amber talked about her childhood, her relationships, her time with Scott, and what happened when she found out who Scott really was. Amber was brave to come forward. I'm sure her life has never been the same, but I hope she's doing well. I'm not sure if I'll ever cover the Scott Peterson case, but maybe one day. I give this book a 9 out of 10. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and book recommendation. I'd love to know what you think. Please subscribe to my blog, follow me on Instagram, buy me a coffee, join my Patreon, patreon.com slash it's crime o'clock somewhere blog pod rate review and reach out to me anytime anything helps thank you so much for listening and i'll be back next week with an all-new case and book recommendation and remember it's crime o'clock somewhere i hope you guys have a great week